Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of our elders here for the church. Have you ever had one of those moments when you get a good, hard look at who you really are? You know, when your defenses are low and your anxiety is high and the filth or the vileness in your heart leaks out in a particularly unflattering or repulsive way. Like maybe you got caught lying to your parents or to your spouse. Or you lost your temper at a person who previously looked up to you but now isn't so sure. Or you felt so disheartened by all that's going on in the world that you attempted to dull your pain by binging on candy or sleeping all day or hunting for something on the internet. Have you ever had one of those moments? Have you had one recently? Have you had one in the past week? And if not, perhaps you've experienced the filth or the vileness leaking out from another heart close to yours. Maybe you've got a problem person in your own household or circle of friends who just always seems to be beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus. And even young people, maybe you've got a sibling with whom you can never get along and you wonder when this is ever going to work out. This person rubs you the wrong way, or they hurt you continually. They rarely show any remorse. Progress is slow or even absent, and you can't imagine them ever becoming someone you could really trust or be close to. I used to have such a person in my life, and I believed this person to be so far beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus, that for years, to my shame, I didn't even want them to become a Christian. Because then I could continue disliking them. Whether you have ever wondered if you could ever be truly saved by Jesus, or if your enemy could ever be truly saved by Jesus, in either case... God's word for you this morning presents a straightforward truth worthy of your attention, which is this. If Christ can save the worst of sinners, then he can save anybody. I repeat, if Christ can save the worst of sinners, then he can save anybody. In our study of Acts, this morning we come to chapter 9, where we will see Jesus save the worst of sinners. And I hope that by the end of our time, you'll open your heart to wrestle with the fact that he can save anybody. We will see in this text, the worst of sinners meets Jesus The choice of Jesus defies intuition. The instrument of choice unsettles allegiances. And finally, the salvation of Jesus is for anybody. 
Please pray with me as we study God's word. Our Father in heaven, please have mercy and open our eyes that we might see that that we ourselves are not beyond the reach of your grace and the problem people in our lives are not beyond the reach of your grace. Please strengthen us and give us courage and hope as we bear witness to your perfect patience in the life of Saul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, in Acts chapter 9, the worst of sinners meets Jesus, verses 1 through 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, the first thing we see in this narrative is how the worst of sinners meets Jesus. Our main character is a man named Saul. In verse 1, we're told that he is still breathing threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. Back in chapter 7, verse 58, we learned that this was the man who guarded the cloaks of the mob that lynched Stephen. In chapter 8, verse 1, we were told that he specifically approved of Stephen's execution. So he was not conscripted to that task of guarding the cloaks. He wanted to be there, cheering it on. And in verse 3 of chapter 8, this man, Saul, went from house to house to find people who were following Jesus so he could drag them off to prison. Now, we know from other parts of the Bible that Saul was a Pharisee. He was a member of the most rigorous and devout sect of Judaism. Now, as a Pharisee, he doesn't have any political power. All he has is social influence. That's why here he has to go to the high priest in verses 1 and 2 in order to get an order of extradition. You see, he wants to go to Damascus, which is outside the land of Israel. It's in, it's further north. It's 140 miles away from Jerusalem. It's in the, the land of Syria. And he wants to go all the way up there to track down more people who might belong to the way. That's what they're calling this Jesus movement at this time. And he wants to bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem for justice. Now, we do not know how there were disciples of Jesus in Damascus, 
up in Syria, 140 miles away from Jerusalem. We, the book of Acts hasn't told us how the message of Jesus spread there. We also do not know why Saul held such a grudge against Christ followers in Damascus. I mean, why not go to closer regions like Samaria or Galilee, where we, we know there, there are churches? We don't know these, these things, but what we can tell is that the portrait that this book is painting of Saul is a portrait of a man willing to do whatever he must to do what he believes is right. He will go out of his way. He will inconvenience himself however necessary, even by 140 miles, to see the name of God and the religion of God kept pure and held in high esteem so that we can that he could get rid of these defiling Jesus followers. Do you see what is so evil about what Saul is doing? Not only is he seeking to harm individuals and families, he's ripping households apart, he's removing them forcibly from their homes, ultimately, of course, to see them not only marginalized, robbed, and oppressed, but to see them suffer the pain of death And he can cheer that on like he did with Stephen. Not only does he do all those things, but he does all of these things in the name of God. He thinks he's doing a service to God. Now, it's one thing and it's a terrible thing to be an oppressor or a tyrant or a despot. But it's an altogether worse thing to be an oppressor, a tyrant, or a despot under the delusion that this is what God wants you to do for Him. This is the tragedy of 9-11 hijackers. This is the tragedy of ISIS firing squads. This is the tragedy of much early American slave-holding. This is the tragedy of the Spanish Inquisition and the Nazi Party. You see, all these groups felt that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And this is the tragedy of Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. He had studied under the tutelage of another Pharisee, Rabbi Gamaliel, He was the guy who, back in chapter 5, said, let's leave these disciples of Jesus alone. If this is not from God, it'll fall apart on its own. But here's Saul. He doesn't follow his teacher's philosophy. He sincerely believed that God wanted him to hunt, to harm, and to kill these people. Later in his life, Saul would look back on this season of his life, and he would label himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's from 1 Timothy 1.13. You see, his later self holds nothing back, and he calls this what it is. It is nothing short of blasphemy or slandering the name of God, a sin so destructive that it is worthy of death. And yet, on his way to Damascus to do what he thinks God wants him to do, He literally sees the light. This story on this road 
with this light that appears and he falls to the ground. It's, it's told here very similarly to the way the story is told of Moses being called by God in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. You see, there's a bright light. There's falling to the ground. There are introductions made between the man and his true God. There's a great miracle being done to give him confirmation of this call. And there's a command to get up and to go somewhere. See, it's very similar. I think we ought to be thinking of, of that burning bush scene in, in the back of our minds as we read this. And it's important to see a lot of those connections. But the thing that really stands out is the differences. Now that Luke has made those connections, we ought to notice the differences. Because at the burning bush for Moses, it was Yahweh, God, who appeared to Moses. And here, that Lord Yahweh who appeared in the fire to Moses is now revealed to be the Lord Jesus whom Saul is persecuting. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the one to whom the Lord calls from this bright light, he is not a disinterested shepherd living in the wilderness like Moses was. You see, if this calling of Saul were similar to the event with the burning bush, it would be as though the burning bush didn't appear to Moses in the desert, but to Pharaoh in Egypt, the oppressor and the attacker of God's people. What Jesus does is he takes the initiative here. He breaks in to put an end to Saul's homicidal campaign. He's not letting Saul take anyone bound back to Jerusalem. He won't let Saul see his own way for at least three days right here. And the worst of sinners, heading down a murderous track, gets unwittingly smashed into by Jesus and reset onto a completely different course for his life. This event of Saul's conversion is one of the most well-known passages in the book of Acts, and for good reason. It's so important that the book of Acts will recount it for us two more times later in the book. Saul himself will tell the story in his own words in chapters 22 and 26. And Saul himself will reflect on it multiple times in the letters that he will write later. Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 1, among others. He keeps revisiting the impact of this event on his life and on the world. But the funny thing is that the text here in Acts 9, uniquely to all of those other places where this event is described, the thing that's unique here is Acts 9 doesn't dwell on Saul's own reflections. We're not told in this chapter what was going on in his mind at the time. We, have, we get that from all those other passages. But what happens here is the scene shifts to, a, to another place and another person. And the rest of this passage deals with how other people view and react to this untimely disruption to Saul's life direction. So first, we check in with a follower of Jesus in Damascus, a guy named Ananias. He shows up nowhere in Scripture other than this paragraph, where the choice of Jesus defies intuition. Look at verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... 
And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, this second part of the narrative shows us that the choice of Jesus defies intuition. The conversion of Saul to follow Jesus was so drastic and so unexpected that Jesus himself has to show up again in another vision, in verse 10, to another guy, Ananias, in order to persuade him to go and help Saul. The funny thing is that Jesus never commands Ananias to actually do anything except go. Verse 15, he says, go. Verse 11, rise and go. And, and look for Saul. That's the only command he gives him is, is to go and, and look for Saul. And this story this paragraph, it's told in, in a very convoluted way. As you read it, you look at it, it, I think it has the effect of making us as readers experience how convoluted it must have felt to the characters themselves as they were going through it. What do I mean by convoluted? Well, Jesus doesn't tell Ananias what to do. He simply says that Saul is in Damascus, and then he says that Saul had a vision of a man named Ananias laying hands on him. So we have a vision about another vision that happened off screen, so to speak. You know, so Saul had this second vision of Jesus, uh, of Ananias coming to him. Jesus tells Ananias in verses 15 and 16 what he will show Saul. He says, I must show him how much he will suffer for my name. But he doesn't tell Ananias to say any of those things to Saul himself. So we don't know if Ananias told him that or not. But then in verse 17, Ananias shows up and he, he does to Saul what Saul saw him do in his vision. And then he does some extra things. He baptizes him right away and he gives him something to eat. And it's just, it's weird. It's convoluted the way the, way the story is told. And all of this defies intuition. And Ananias tries to appeal it on that ground to Jesus. You see in verse 13, he says, Jesus, I know this guy. 
I know who he is and I know what he's here to do. Verse 14. He's here on the priest's authority. He wants to bind up those who call on your name. It's like this doesn't make any sense. What's Jesus' response? Well, he's not going to bind anybody. In fact, he will be bound to carry my name. You see, Jesus alleviates Ananias' anxiety by simply declaring that Saul is my chosen instrument. He is my chosen instrument. Jesus has simply selected Saul to carry his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul was not seeking Jesus. He was not trying to follow him. Saul was not inquiring or looking into whether Jesus might in fact be the Messiah. Saul was not persuaded by what Stephen said before they killed him. He was not searching the Old Testament for clues into the mystery of God's glory revealed in the humility of his suffering servant and to be carried out to the nations, all the nations of the earth. Saul was not looking for any of this and by no means was he deserving of mercy. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Yet Jesus decided... To show up and interrupt his plans. All because he had simply chosen Saul to be his vessel of mercy. His chosen instrument to carry his name. He wanted Saul to be an agent of delivering his mercy out to the nations of the world. Friends, please be amazed at Jesus' plan. When he wanted to get the gospel out, the good news of his kingdom to all nations of the earth, he needed to appoint a representative to carry out the task. And he chose the one person on earth who never would have wanted the job. Yet Jesus' choice of Saul made it possible for the gospel to come eventually to me and to you. This was a completely counterintuitive choice. One that Ananias cannot at first believe. But Jesus did this to show how perfect his patience is with the least deserving. And to show off the riches of his glory toward those who believe. How does this apply? Friends, we will never be able to tame or even predict a God who would do this. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. The person that you or I think is beyond the reach of his grace is perhaps a likely candidate for his grace. Those who attack and seek to undermine the church of Jesus Christ may in fact be closer to the kingdom of Jesus Christ than they themselves realize. It is not for us to decide who can or cannot become a Christian. The choice of Jesus defies intuition. 
this really transformed the way I thought about my own problem person in my life as I actually grappled with these truths. That person I mentioned earlier whom I didn't even want to become a Christian for many years, I still have trouble envisioning the possibility. There's, there's not a great happy ending to this story yet. But I pray often and compassionately for their rescue by Jesus. It is not for us to either lose hope in or place our hope in anyone doing what is right by the Lord. It is only for us to preach the good news and to stand in awe when a miracle occurs and the dead come to life by faith in Jesus Christ. When that miracle occurs, it will be unsettling for everyone involved. Former allies will feel betrayed. Former antagonists will have a hard time trusting that it's legitimate. Let's take a look at what that looks like. Point number three, the instrument of choice unsettles allegiances, verses 19 through 30, starting at the end of 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Let me reread that. Listen to that sentence. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. That means he was accepted by them, became part of their community, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Wow. Saul has really turned around here. Instead of seeking to bind disciples, verses 1 and 2, he is now staying with them, verse 19. Instead of uh, attempting to bind disciples, he is bound up himself into a basket, verse 25, and lowered from a city wall. Instead of escorting disciples to Jerusalem as he intended, he himself must be escorted by Barnabas in Jerusalem, verse 27. But what's truly amazing is instead of blaspheming the name of Jesus, 
he is now proclaiming Jesus as Son of God, verse 20, and as Messiah, or Christ, verse 22. Instead of threatening the disciples with murder, he is now a disciple being threatened with murder. Verses 23 and 29. Ananias is not the only one unsure of how to deal with this guy. In verse 21, everyone in Damascus is confused, knowing that he had come to bind disciples of Jesus. In verse 26, the disciples in Jerusalem aren't even willing to associate with him out of fear. In verses 27 and 28, the apostles themselves, the leaders of the church, they appear unwilling to receive him into the community until Barnabas vouches for him. Go Barnabas. He's the one guy who has some like deep insight into what Jesus is doing here. The point here is that nobody knows what to think of this guy. Nobody knows. And as I mentioned earlier, in this chapter, we're not told what Saul himself was thinking through all this. We're told what everybody else was thinking about it. The sudden, drastic conversion of such a harsh opponent shakes everybody up. His former partners now feel that they must assassinate him. And his former targets aren't even sure if they can trust him. Perhaps this is why in verse 30, the Jerusalem disciples send Saul away. You know, better just not deal with this. We don't know what to do with you. So they take him up from Jerusalem to the coastal town of Caesarea. They put him on a ship and send him across the Mediterranean to the north, back to his hometown of Tarsus, up in Turkey. You know, our allegiances are so out of whack. Let's just send him back to his family and let them deal with him. We too should expect that when Jesus rescues a person, he is going to interrupt all their former allegiances and he is going to throw everything out of whack. This is deeply unsettling. It disrupts our communities. It puts us in a position of experiencing constant change. You know, in, uh, <clears throat> in our campus ministry, we once had a student who grew up in a Christian household. And this student, when he, he actually got much more serious about his faith in Christ in college where Jesus just became Lord of everything, Lord of his life. And it, he, he started getting radical about Jesus. And his Christian parents started calling him and e uh, emailing him at the time and suggesting that he find girls to hook up with on weekends because he was upsetting them so much. <laughs> you see, this is unsettling. When Jesus grabs a hold of someone. We should not grow too comfortable with our community. Hoping and expecting our community to stay the same for long periods of time is a disaster. Because Jesus is constantly shaking things up and unsettling allegiances. So what? When all is said and done, what does this mean for us? This is our last point. 
This means that the salvation of Jesus is for anybody. It's for anybody. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now this verse concludes this whole section of Acts, which began all the way back in in chapter 6, verse 8. This section showed us the growth of Christ's kingdom through varied results. See, we've, we've got these narrative summary statements about the growth of the church sprinkled through Acts. And, and, and this, this is, is one of them that ends this section. You know, we saw the varied results in this section. We saw the unjust martyrdom of Stephen. We saw the unpredictable acclaim of Philip in both Samaria and Ethiopia. And now we've seen the unlikely conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And the end result here in, in chapter 9, verse 31, is that we have one church in multiple regions. You see, it's the church, singular, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. We don't have multiple competing churches in these regions. We have one church, and, and this church is, is having peace and being built up. You see, thanks to the, that revival led by Philip, And thanks to the conversion of Saul, Jesus' disciples in all of the regions now have peace and are growing. They are multiplying as they fear the Lord and are comforted by the Holy Spirit. The point is that Saul's conversion had very practical effects on the ordinary believers. The ones who didn't have such a dramatic events happen to them. While Saul is, in a sense, unique with this vision of Jesus and being called and appointed by Jesus to to bear witness before him to to the nations, he, he is unique. But at the same time, he's also illustrative of all conversion to Christ. He is the worst of sinners with a unique confrontation by the risen Jesus and unique call in his life, but he also shows us what to expect simply of the nature of conversion to Christ. What does that look like in a person's life? Listen to Saul's own reflections on his conversion. I I want to look at this from 1 Timothy to get some of his reflections in. And I've alluded to this numerous times in the sermon so far. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, here's what Saul had to say about this event. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
You see, he tells us that mercy came to him for the following reason. It was to give us an example of Jesus' perfect patience. Because, you see, Saul, he calls himself here the foremost of sinners, the worst of sinners. And he's not just showing us how to have an appropriate level of self-deprecation, such that we all should walk around calling ourselves chief of sinners or foremost of sinners. That's not his point. He's saying he's unique in that. Look, verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, I might be an example to the rest of you. So his point is, if Jesus can save the worst sinner, then he can save anybody. Look at his perfect patience. And Saul shows us that following Jesus is hard. It unsettles allegiances. It's not about just sitting in the back of the church every week or or even the front of the church every week for years on end and being content to just take up some space praising the Lord. You see, there's a cost. Allegiances will be unsettled. Jesus has his purposes. Following Jesus will be painful. It means stepping out and taking risks and opening yourself up to the pain of rejection and laying it all down for the sake of winning others. You see, there will be people who do not receive the grace of Jesus Christ. That's a fact of life. But we need to come to grips with the fact that there will be people in our lives whom we feel cannot receive the grace of Jesus Christ. But thanks to Christ's work in Saul, peace and multiplication now belong to us through the power of the Holy Spirit as the name of Jesus is carried before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So please, please, friends, consider that person in your acquaintance who has aggravated you or consistently hurt you. And I understand, I do understand that trust is a precious commodity and broken trust is not easily repaired. I'm not saying that that's easy or quick. But please search your own heart and consider whether you have walled yourself off out of fear or out of a presumption that this hurtful person lies beyond the grace of God. And if your worst pain comes when you look in the mirror and, and you, you wrestle with your own fitness to serve Jesus and you wonder whether he could ever truly accept you or consider you his child, please now proclaim to yourself and to the world that if Christ can save the worst of sinners, as he did with Saul, he can save anybody. Please do not fear Or be discouraged. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Lord you have given us such an incredible example of your perfect patience with the worst of sinners. Please open our eyes that we might see and believe to know that we are not beyond the reach of your grace and no one in our lives is beyond the reach of your grace. Give us eyes 
to see people the way you see them. Please give us the faith to, to love and move toward people the way you would have us do, the way you have done with us, even while we were your enemies and you sent your son to die for us. Please help us and strengthen us by grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.